responsibility as the people of God to bear the world before God, to take care of them. People say, well, Pastor Daniel, shouldn't we just preach to them? Yes, we should, and we should demonstrate the reality of the gospel as well. We don't separate demonstration and proclamation at all. You can't really proclaim the word if you're not going to live it out. And listen, if you're living it out, don't ever be afraid to say, man, I did this because of Jesus. Because let's be honest, we'd never be nearly as generous or kind as we are if Jesus didn't come into our lives and say, be kind, because I'm kind. As Pastor Daniel is taught about the intricacies and craftsmanship displayed throughout the building of the tabernacle, it's evident that there were a lot of hands involved. But one figure, Moses, he wasn't involved with the construction. As the people jumped into the project with obedient hearts, God used each person's individual gifts in a mighty way. Most of us are not like Moses, but we're all vital to the completion of his work. Now, here's Pastor Daniel as he continues his message entitled, Construction. They go back over, they call it the Tabernacle of the Testimony. We haven't heard that before. It goes back over that it came from Moses, the service of the Levites, Bezalel and Aholiab. If you're thinking about this, you realize that this section reads like it comes from a different place. And the reason I bring this up is because if you were to go to school and they would talk to you about the, the Torah, the first five books, you'd learn about something called source criticism. And source criticism, there's a lot of scholars who believe that the first five books of Moses were actually compiled from a number of sources and were put together at a later date. The reason I bring this up is because this is one of the proof texts that they use for that. They say, doesn't that read like it's coming, like all of a sudden you're getting all this stuff and then all of a sudden it breaks out again and starts explaining things to us that we already know. They give us all this inventory, which we haven't had before, and it tells us about Bezalel and Holyab. We've already gotten these guys a number of times. So I wanted to bring that up because some people struggle with the reality that Moses never wrote all five books. And I'm here to tell you, nowhere in it does it say that Moses wrote all five books. It doesn't say that. We assume that, and our traditions hold to some of that. But nowhere in the first five books does it say Moses wrote any of this. You don't get it one time in the book of Genesis. So I bring that out because sometimes people use the idea of source criticism, where there's multiple people who wrote these five books that were compiled later, and they use it to disprove the Bible and say, well, Moses never wrote it. You guys believe Moses? And nowhere does it say that Moses wrote it. So whether or not Moses penned all of it or parts of it or none of it, that doesn't mean anything to inspiration. Because inspiration has nothing to do with a person. It has everything to do with the God who inspired them. And if God can speak through a donkey to Balaam, then God can inspire any old Joe, no matter who they are, whether we know them or not, to be used as his scribe. Does that make sense? So I bring that out because I don't ever want you to think that source criticism is going to make you lose your faith. Remember, what do we always say about the Bible? When the Bible remains silent, what? We should be also. And so even though a lot of our Bibles say the first book of Moses, the book of Genesis, the second book of Moses, 
The, the text itself doesn't say that. Someone put that title on it. And what's interesting is if you go back to the Hebrew, they never call it Genesis. They call it Bereshit, which is in the beginning. Exodus is Shemar. It's just the first. They just take the first word of it and they call it that. The book of Leviticus, our, our translation, the first words is now the Lord. And the name of Leviticus for people who are Jewish is Vayikra, which is now the Lord said. So it's interesting. So these names, like the first book of Moses, it's a little misleading. It's like the chapter breaks in your Bible. Guess what? Never inspired that way. Someone put them in later. All the verse breaks, they put them in later so we can grab them. I don't think it's wrong, but I'm also not going to hang my theology on chapter breaks or verse breaks. Someone did that later, not part of the inspired text. So I bring that out because I realize that some of you guys, you guys, you go to school, you read books, and you're like, oh, what do we do with this source criticism? And they believe that there's five primary authors of the first five books, and they J, E, D, and P. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. If you look up source criticism, you can have fun with it. So there's a lot of these different theories. What's interesting is that as, as wise as the source criticism is, they always end up in la-la land at some point. So how they came up with, you know, I know how they came up with five primary sources, but even that is so speculative. You don't know what to do with it. But there's a good chance, there is a good chance that the first five books of Moses, what we call the Torah, were actually compiled in or after the exile to Babylon by a later source. I don't think it has, we have no problem with that if that's the case. We just don't really know. But Moses probably didn't sit down and write all five books straight out because it would have been weird for him if he was the most humblest man who ever lived to actually write that in his own book. Because you're going to find that in the book of, of Deuteronomy. It says Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. And you and I would know that if I wrote Daniel's the most humble guy who ever lived, you'd be like, oh, yeah, right, Pastor Daniel. Right? Like if you were, you'd never say it, right? So when you get things like that, he even talks about Moses' burial in the book of Deuteronomy. How do you pull that off? Ha-ha. Whatever Moses did or didn't write, I don't think it has any really bearing on if this is God's word or not. But I thought it was important that I bring it out because this is one of those places where you're like, oh, yeah, this is how we bring that out. Okay, so next, chapter 39. We get into all the gear for the priests. And I like this about the Lord. The Lord wanted his priests to look fine, and so he got them a whole getup. Look at verse 1. Of the blue, purple, scarlet thread, they made garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place and made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 2, he made the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread of fine woven linen. And they beat the gold into thin sheets and cut it into threads to work it in with the blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the fine linen into artistic designs. They made shoulder straps for it to couple it together. It was coupled together at its two edges. Verse 5, and the intricately woven band of his ephod that was on it was the same workmanship woven of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread of fine woven linen as the Lord had commanded Moses. And they said, onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold, they were engraved as signets are engraved with the names of the sons of Israel. He put them on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, all of this we looked at in Exodus chapter 28, and we went through it specifically. 
The ephod was what looks like the apron. You notice it's very decorative and colorful. It's got a sash. So this is underneath that, that breastplate is this decorative. It almost looks like an apron. Now, I like this about the Lord because the Lord's got a sense of style. You know, I think it's, it's not a bad point. God's a designer. And so the priests who are ministering to the Lord, he doesn't make them look frumpy or dumpy. He, he actually, he dolls them up a little bit. It's kind of cool. There's blue and purple and there's scarlet thread. There's, there's gold thread weaved in it. Notice at the end of this, it starts talking about the names of the children of Israel. This is going to be the key. Remember that we, ha- we have it on the shoulder pads. So we're going to have it on the breastplate. The priest's job was to bear the people before God and God before the people. That was their job. Their job was to stand in the gap between humanity and a holy God. Right? Now, again, Jesus is the great high priest. So all of this ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus. When Jesus took the sins of the world upon himself and bore them on our behalf unto the Lord. So Jesus is that mediator. There's one mediator, the New Testament says, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But as we said in 1 Peter chapter 2, quoting the book of Deuteronomy, that we're a kingdom of priests. And so just as Jesus, he's the one mediator, God asks each one of us to stand in the gap between an unbelieving world and him and to bear the struggles of people in his place. So we, as the body and blood of Jesus, as the body and the hands and feet of Jesus, we have a mediatorial role as well. It's part of being the family of God. That's why we're called to do ministry, to be the servant of all, to go to the least of these, to be okay to share our faith and roll up our sleeves and serve. That's why as a church we're giving lots of money to charity water because we believe that that's a godly thing to do. We want people to know the living water, Jesus Christ, and we want them to be alive long enough by having physical water because almost all of child, a lot of child illnesses in developing countries stems from a lack of clean water. And to whom much has been given, much will be required. Every single Sunday and Wednesday, I have a bottle of water up here, ionized, filtered. This water is so clean, it's probably not even good for me. Two billion people in the world don't have access to clean water. How many of you have traveled and drank the water or ate the ate salad and got sick because of all the stuff that's in it. Now imagine some children, some parents, they have to hike on foot two, three miles to put dirty water in dirty buckets to bring it back for their family. The whole family gets sick. Children don't have fully developed immune systems, die of curable illnesses because they don't have access to clean water. See, we have a responsibility as the people of God to bear the world before God, to take care of them. People say, well, Pastor Daniel, shouldn't we just preach to them? Yes, we should, and we should demonstrate the reality of the gospel as well. We don't separate demonstration and proclamation at all. You can't really proclaim the word if you're not going to live it out. And listen, if you're living it out, don't ever be afraid to say, man, I do this because of Jesus. Because let's be honest, we'd never be nearly as generous or kind as we are if Jesus didn't come into our lives and say, you need to be kind because I'm kind. You need to be giving, because I'm giving. You need to be nice, because guess what? I'm nice. God's changed us. We should never be ashamed to say, I do this because of Jesus. Jesus is at work in my life. And we should never be afraid to say, I'm going to let my actions speak. And when someone says, why are you doing this? Say, man, because we love Jesus. We do that a lot at this church. 
we proclaim and we demonstrate. We realize that there's sometimes where all we can do is demonstrate. Like I think Second Saturday is a great ministry we've had for years. Demonstrated the love of Jesus all around. It's amazing all the people who come and they say, man, I just, I, I've never seen people do this on a Saturday. And when they say, why? We say, well, man, we'd love to tell you why. We do it because of Jesus. Sure, on a Saturday we can do a million things, but we're choosing to serve you because of Jesus, because he's real, because we love him. So we demonstrate and we proclaim the word. And you'll notice on all the priestly garments, there's all the names of the tribes are constantly on all these different things because they're a representative of the people for God and of God for the people. Now, that's the ephod. Now, of course, you get into the breastplate. Verse 8, and he made the breastplate artistically woven with the workmanship of the ephod of gold, blue, purple, scarlet, and of fine woven linen. They made the breastplate square by doubling it. A span was its length, a span its width when doubled, and they set it in the four rows of stones, a row with a sardis, a topaz, and an emerald was the first row, the second row a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond, the third row a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst, the fourth row a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They were enclosed in settings of gold in their mooring, in their mountings. There were twelve stones according to the names of the sons of Israel, according to the names engraved like a signet, each one with its own name according to the twelve tribes. And they made chains for the breastplate at the ends like braided cords of pure gold. They also made two settings of gold and two gold rings and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. And they put the two braided chains of gold in the two rings on the ends of the breastplate, the two ends of the two braided chains they fastened in the two settings and put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front and they made two rings of gold and put them on the two ends of the breastplate on the edge of it which was on the inward side of the ephod and made two other gold rings and put them on the two shoulder straps underneath the ephod toward the front right at the seam above the intricately woven band of the ephod and they bound the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod with its blue cord so that it would be above the intricately woven band of the ephod and that the breastplate would not come loose from the ephod as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, we looked at this in Exodus chapter 28, verses 15 to 28. Everything is mentioned here except for, of course, the Urim and the Thummim which, as we told you last time, nobody exactly knows what they were or how they function. But I do think it's important to note again briefly that when God thinks of each tribe, he thinks of them as a precious jewel. And I think that's an important point. God didn't say, I want you to just take any old rock and write their names on it. It's a list of precious jewels from that day. That is how God sees his human creation, humanity. And again, we've been talking about this over and over again about God's preciousness that he sees in humanity. Each different tribe was given a different stone, and all of the stones were precious. That breastplate is right there in the middle, the four rows, with each with three stones apiece. It's a little gaudy, really, if you look at it. But it's kind of cool. Like That's the way God chose to get them set up there. And so, and notice there was all the discussion about the ring, so it attaches to the ephod. They didn't want it to fall off. That would symbolically be a, a mistake. So this is just that center breastplate that the high priest wore. Now, all the other priestly garments we get in verses 22 to 31. 
First, we have the construction of the robe. He made the robe, verse 22, of the ephod of woven work, all of blue. And there was an opening in the middle of the robe, like the opening in, the coat of, in a coat of mail, with a woven binding all around the opening, so that it would not tear. They made of the hem of the robe pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet, and of fine woven linen, verse 25, and they made bells of pure gold, and put the bells between the pomegranates on the hem of the robe all around between the pomegranates, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate, all around the hem of the robe to minister in as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made tunics artistically woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, a turban, headgear of fine linen, linen, exquisite hats of fine linen. I love that. Short trousers of woven linen. I just love the fact that they got cool headgear. I just think that's awesome. God's into lids. That's why gals have worn lids to church historically. That's a whole other discussion. I do want you to notice, of course, I made the point, those short trousers of fine linen. Undergarments were not the norm in that day. People went, as you would say, commando style. And so the priests were given undergarments because they were going to walk in front of the people and they didn't want their nakedness to be uncovered. Just a fascinating point of history. Verse 30. Then they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and they wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And they tied to it a blue cord to fasten it above the turban as the Lord had commanded Moses. I love that. On the turban, on the crown, there's a plate that says holiness to the Lord. There's that white turban and then there's that gold plate, holiness to the Lord. That's how God wants us to be. The theme of the book of Leviticus is be holy as the Lord your God is holy. Because Jesus is holy, he's in the process of making us holy. And the priest wore that. I mean, imagine, imagine seeing the high priest where it says holiness to the Lord. Now, if some of you are really feeling like you want to get tattooed, get holiness to the Lord tattooed on your forehead. You know what's funny? You probably wouldn't get a tattoo then, would you? Which maybe is the lesson for all of us. Someone's like, oh. Verse 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Verse 33. And they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent, and all of its furnishings, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets. The covering of ramskin dyed red, the covering of badger skins, and the veil of the covering, the ark of the testimony with its poles, and the mercy seat, the table, all its utensils, and, and the showbread, the the pure gold lampstand with its lamps, the lamp set in order, all its utensils and the oil for light and the gold altar, the anointing oil and the sweet incense, the screen for the tabernacle door, the bronze altar, its grate of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the labor with its base, verse 40, the hangs of the court, its pillars and its sockets, the screen for the court gate, its cords and its pegs, all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting, and the garments of ministry to minister in the holy place, holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and his son's garments to minister as priests, according to all the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work. Then Moses looked over all the work, and indeed they had done it, as the Lord had commanded, just so they had done it. And Moses blessed them. Now, 
Just a few things I want you to notice here. Now the work is completed. I want you to notice they brought all these things to Moses. Moses actually didn't do that. Now, why do I bring that out? Because each person has a role that they play in the body of Christ. Moses was not called or equipped to do this work. There were other people who did. And Moses' job ultimately was just to inspect it and say, this is done in accordance with the way the Lord has asked us to do it. And that's such an important thing for us because we do live in a day and age where everyone thinks that everyone should do everything. Like everyone's a master of a, everyone's a, a mile wide and an inch deep. When really God wants us to be a mile deep and an inch wide. Each one of us has a certain set of gifts that God wants to use like crazy. And it's interesting. All, the, all this was done and it was all just brought to Moses. Moses said, yep, that's right. That, that's right. That's what God asked for. That's right. That's right. That's right. And notice, and, and this is a beautiful thing. They bring everything to Moses and notice what happens. In verse 42, it says, according to all the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work. Then Moses looked over all the work, and indeed they had done it as the Lord commanded, just so they had done it, and Moses blessed them. And rabbinical scholars, Christian scholars, all see that this is in a lot of ways exactly what God did at the end of creation. When God looked over everything and said, this is good, this is good, you have almost a reprise of creation with the building of the tabernacle where Moses is looking over it. It's all done exactly the way God designed. Now God is inviting the people of God to be part of his creative process. And when Moses looks over all of it, he blesses the people. How beautiful is that? That God invites you and I to be part of his creative process. That God invites his people to live his life, his way, empowered by his spirit. And when we do that, we're part of God's creation in the way God intended it to be. God blessed it. Moses, everything they did was exactly what God asked, and Moses blessed the people. And brothers and sisters, as I close, God is a blessing God. He wants to bless his people. He wants to place his hand of blessing upon your life and my life. But he can't do it when we don't do his work his way. He can't do it. He wants to. He, he loves you too much to bless what you're doing that's a crooked way. And it's an important picture for us because, listen, Jesus cleanses our way. Jesus takes the crooked paths and makes them straight. But I'm here to tell you, God wants to bless you. He wants to bless you. But we need to say, Lord, I want to do your work in your way. I, I want to be like the children of Israel, all that God's commanded me, I'm going to do it. That when, when someone comes and looks it over, they look over your whole life, they look over the things that you watch on TV, the things you do on the internet, the texts that you send to people. It looks over your checkbook and your calendar and they say, yep, this is exactly what God wants. Can you imagine if we had inventories like that? Terrifying, right? Terrifying. And we wonder why God's hand of blessing seems far from us. I love this. God wants to bless his people. Jesus is real. When the tabernacle was finished, Moses blessed the people. Everything had been done according to God's instructions, not built by Moses, but by using the gifts of individuals. 
As we do what God asks of us, He wants to bless us as well. Giving is one of the central themes in the Bible. Believe it or not, it's the main subject of nearly half of the parables that Jesus taught. Like prayer and serving others, money is an outlet of spiritual power. When it's released into ministry, God does amazing things with it. To understand what it means to be a Christ follower, we must also understand what it means to be a giver. Please prayerfully consider becoming a monthly supporter of Jesus is Real Radio. For more information, log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com. Thanks, Josh. Pastor Daniel would like to invite you to join him each day on Facebook for his two-minute messages. Pastor Daniel shares from his heart and God's Word in a way that will impact your life. It's the perfect way to inject a little bit of Jesus into your routine. Log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com and follow the links to the two-minute messages. Now, here's Josh with a preview of what Pastor Daniel will be covering in the next edition of Jesus Is Real Radio. Join us again here on Jesus Is Real Radio when we will find out what happens once the tabernacle is assembled. The people did what the Lord asked them to do and God was clear about His expectations for them. We wish we had more time today, but we will have to pick up where we left off next time as Pastor Daniel continues teaching through his series entitled Tabernacle. That's next time on Jesus is Real Radio.